Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Ajawan Rating's name will appear on the ballot for the first time next fall when he runs to represent California's 18th Congressional District, which includes parts of San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz counties. Having grown up in and out of homelessness, Rating has a different perspective when it comes to tackling housing and social service issues in Silicon Valley. He's joining us today as part of our First Person series, which profiles local leaders and changemakers who make the Bay Area unique. Welcome to the show, Ajuan. Thank you so much, Alexis. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah. You know, I wanted to start out kind of at the end of your career, and then we're going to work back a little bit. Uh, we know you're a candidate for office, but your your day job is at a Palo Alto law firm. Um, and I'd love to just hear a little bit about what you're doing kind of like on an everyday basis, and then we're going to flip back to your childhood. Absolutely. I mean, again, thank you so much for having me. I think one of the reasons why I was drawn to the Bay Area is very much because of my legal practice right now. Um, I, I feel very blessed. I work at a, um, a very excellent law firm called Wilson Sensini. But I, I have a little bit of an unorthodox practice because I focus on representing primarily startups and emerging companies, those started by women, LGBTQ, and other underrepresented minorities. And that just really ties into like the background I've had growing up, understanding how to fight and give opportunity to those and access to those who need it. And so that's what I focus on primarily on companies, anything ranging from those tackling on climate change to blockchain and crypto, to even companies that are trying to help address the housing affordability crisis. And it's because I think underrepresented folks and marginalized folks understand that it is smart business to actually be trying to effectuate the market and create solutions that can really break through and create positive change. So that's the the current endpoint of your story at the ripe old age of, I think, 29, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I'm 29. <laughs> um, back when you were born, your mom is from Kenya, and you were in really different circumstances. Just can you tell us a little bit about what, what was growing up like for you? Yeah, I mean, mom's um, from northwest Kenya, and she was born in Nairobi, and dad, who passed away right when I was born, is from Switzerland. Um, but I was raised by my single mom my whole life, but I think my journey really begins. It wasn't really until I started running for Congress that my mom had to sit down and emphasize to me. She was like, you get like, Ajwan, you get it right. Like that first night when you came out of the hospital, we did not have a place to be. And 
So in many ways, I was actually born into homelessness the very moment we left the hospital. And my mom couldn't even afford the baby carriage to actually be released from the hospital. And throughout the years, fortunately, we went to a Catholic um, shelter, then to a Jewish shelter in Los Angeles, but ultimately made our way to Orange County, where we were able to get back on our feet for a little while, but ultimately lived and I don't know if you know this car, but 2001 Dodge Neon, which is I can't not a imagine a more difficult car to live in, actually. <laughs> it is not a pretty car, but that was home for me for over close, you know, over a decade. Um, mom in the driver's seat and me in the passenger seat. And so I know firsthand the experience of what it's like to have to wash yourself in public restrooms, mm -hmm. having to actually sneak into the boys' locker room early in the morning to try and get a you know, shower or to clean up and to fold your clothes in the trunk of your car. That's, those have been the experiences that have really shaped me. And it's still very much, I carry with it, with me till this day. You know, hearing you describe it, you don't seem traumatized by it. I, and I feel like any brushes that I've had with truly having no money or having our family have no money, I, I find horribly traumatic. I, I worry have you like worked through this gone to therapy like how have you dealt with what was you know could not have been an easy experience you know that's actually such an excellent question because i i'm i struggle with this every day i mean the legacy of poverty and being unhoused and homelessness is a profound one and something that i often have to fight against is the character of what it means to actually live on the streets or live out of your car people think it's you know a lot of people who suffer from mental illness or some sort of instability in their lives. And those are just natural externalities of when you're forced to actually do homework under a streetlight or find food in a trash can, et cetera. So to answer your question more pointedly, like I'm working through it every single day, but like I look at my mom's ankles, which are still very much swollen because she had to stay up all night watching us in case a police officer found us in our car. And so I'm still, you know, even with the resources I have today, and I'm, I feel very blessed to have become like a small business owner in real estate, et cetera, we're still tackling that legacy. And mm. it's something emotionally and spiritually I'm still working through, but the beauty of being on the campaign trail, when I go door knocking with my mom or supporters, we meet people who also are broken in their own way. And even if it's not the experience of homelessness that they identify with per se, there's something else. Everyone knows what it's like to be discounted and counted out or overlooked, or over marginalized in some point in your life. And it gets worse, you know, depending on your racial identity, but it's it's something that I'm working through, but this campaign has been one of the most healing things I've ever done mm. in my life because I meet people and they restore my faith and confidence in society. You know, I want to talk a little bit about your experience. I mean, you went to UCLA, um, which is, is awesome. Go Bruins. Uh, but, but then you had some really interesting experiences in Europe. And I wonder how they've affected the way that you see uh, race relations here in the U.S. You went to Northern Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. And you also studied uh, anti-Semitism as well as sort of like it sounds like colonial uh, over legacy in France. How would those experiences kind of change the way you saw like just sort of uh, the American caste system? Oh, I mean, so I got this weird opportunity when I was in undergrad. I actually left school 
early because through a scholarship, they invited me and said, hey, would you like to do research at the Clinton Peace Center and study truth and reconciliation in Northern Ireland? And I'd never been outside the state, never been outside the country. And here I was as like a young black kid, now in a very white society that I fell in love with. But really I was studying how people with historic violences and everyone feels at the end of the day overlooked in some way. So that experience in Northern Ireland doing truth and reconciliation work and studying the rise of anti-Semitism against um, our Jewish communities in Europe really helped me understand that like, hey, Every, at the end of the day, every country in the world has their issues in terms of trying to marginalize and pin something on a certain group or community. In this country, it's obviously the black community with the, the horrific legacy of this country's founding. But that's part of the reason what led me to go eventually work at Cory Booker's office and write criminal justice reform legislation and then get a job that I had actually applied four years earlier to to work for an incredible human being named Brian Stevenson. And there I investigated lynchings of African-Americans throughout the American South, as well as did anti-death penalty work. And so to answer your question and bring it home, like my experience in Northern Ireland and my experience of studying anti-Semitism really led me to think, okay, how can I do this back here on the home front? And obviously given the history against the black community in this country, I wanted to get proximate to the issue. And I'm very proud that one of my, um, all the research I did and all the soil I digged up of lynching victims throughout the American South is really now in the National Memorial for Peace and Justice mm -hmm. that you can go visit in Montgomery, Alabama. And that's one of my proudest accomplishments in my life. Brian Stevenson, you may know his work, uh, listeners, with the Equal Justice Initiative and might have seen some of his TED Talks or other uh, public appearances. Really, really powerful uh, thinker. We're talking with Ajawan Rading. He was born into homelessness and is now running for Congress in the South Bay as part of our first person series, profiling some of the most interesting people in the Bay Area. What questions do you have for Ajawan Rading? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Um, Ajawan, one listener wants to know, what are mm -hmm. your ideas for the housing crisis in this district? Yeah, look, um, <laughs> there's no issue more that I care about than, of course, housing affordability and accessibility. Now, I, I think there's a little bit of a mythology out there. Um, there's undoubtedly a need for more housing. We know that. Um, that is a given. But at the same time, there is still a lot of available housing units available in this district. And one thing that I think the federal government's always been scared of is to get involved with housing <laughs> due to the 10th amendment. They've left it to local state, you know, local juris uh, jurisdictions, municipalities and the states. But I think the federal government can have a much more profound role. First of all, in trying to help people get access to just basic apartments. Um, HUD over the years, especially under the Trump administration stopped really getting involved in the homeless um, the fight against being unhoused and homelessness. And so I think there's ways to provide more funding towards uh, housing vouchers and whatnot. I also think we should take a close look in terms of foreign players who are overseas, but buy up real estate throughout this, my entire district, uh, District 18, and keep them empty. 
And they use it as a place to like store property value when there's dire need and there's still people sleeping outside those very homes. And I think the federal government could be having a, uh, a unique perspective in saying, hey, look, we want to have everyone here, no matter your background, no matter who, who you are and what you do for a living. We want you in this country because we believe that we're the, uh, the leader of the free world in that respect. But at the same time, I think we should be cautious to have people buying up homes and especially very compact areas that there's not enough housing and not ever visit the home. And I think the federal government can be playing a very dynamic role. We do that for securities. We do that for other aspects in, in our laws. But I think housing is another place that I'm very interested in trying to level the playing field and give access to those who don't have it. Let's bring in, we've got some uh, questions coming in for you from listeners. Let's bring in Petra from Oakland into the conversation. Welcome, Petra. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I was wondering what people would have done for you when you were a little kid with his family living in the car. What would you would have wanted um, passerbys do for you and what would, would you have wanted the government to do? Great question, oh. Petra. Thanks. Petra, I love that question. Um, one thing, first and foremost, just for listeners, um, I will say growing up by a very strong Black woman, um, I saw how people treated her when she would do caregiving and odd jobs. Um, I would go with her, and now she helped take care of elderly folks. That was one of her jobs. And when we had enough money at the end of the week, we would sometimes go and get a motel for a few days. But it's amazing how in our society, we have somehow romanticized white collar jobs as the most dignified, as the ones most worthy of praise. When it's actually those who make the show run behind closed doors, it's labor. It's the people picking up the trash. It's the people who are watering. It's the people who clean up. Those are the people who I think um, our society and our organizations can do so much of a better job in celebrating and, and lifting up, especially with the changing tides that we're seeing technology that can be a threat to those very uh, low wage type of jobs. Um, to answer your second part, Petra, I think the federal government should be trying to protect those communities at all costs. Um, usually transition that happens with technology and the acceleration of forces is a beneficial is beneficial to those who already have. But we really need to be thinking in a place such as Silicon Valley, where there's so much excess and there is so much wealth, we need can't be forgetting those who are, live in our district, who are you know working day to day, working 12 hour shifts and whatnot and making sure that they have a basic livelihood. And the last thing I'll say on this is one idea I really wanna push forward is for, if you're a public servant in this district, I, it's it blows my mind when I speak to firefighters and police officers that they're having to drive two hours to work. And so I think the federal government should be trying to provide profound subsidies to those who are in public service, including teachers, to try and get access to buying a home or affording rent in the very communities that they're serving. It doesn't make sense that you're driving hours and hours away to do, go serve a different community if you can't even afford to be in that community. We've got to be doing a better job. Well, and some of the companies, you know, like Facebook has provided some of these you know, small, small bore uh, kind of funding for that kind of stuff. It's really kind of only the federal government that could really make a difference there. I want to um, call back on, on 
two parts of your experience. You know, one, being a fellow in Cory Booker's office and, and also working with Brian Stevenson. I mean, these are two of the real national leaders among black men. And I was just kind of, what did you learn from them? And did you learn different things um, from the two of them, given how different they are sort of as people? Yeah, I mean, I think I was drawn to them. Um, I mean, mom was always both mom and dad, but I think I specifically wanted to go work towards them because I was very drawn to strong black men who who understand their responsibility and duty to give back. So I, I, I was, I just geeked out when I got both those uh, gigs. Um, from Corey, one thing that I just so admired was every single time when we would try and prep for a bill, the first question he would ask is, what's the right thing to do? And when you have that as premise one in terms of how you view policymaking and you move aside politics and what's tactically right and righteous and what's smart for the party and for the voters and the interests, when that's your first question, you're going to do the right thing. And I was very proud to work for the senator in drafting criminal justice reform before it was a sexy topic. Now it's like so mainstream. But I remember when we were drafting first bills to restore housing rights and voting rights and uh, food stamps to those formerly incarcerated, Democrats were sometimes the ones who were resistant to that agenda. They were saying this doesn't it's, it's not in our agenda to tackle the 94 crime bill by Bill Clinton. And so I was very proud of the senator to lead the way and know, ask first, you know, what's the right thing to do. And for Brian Stevenson, he really taught me that we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. That's a famous saying of his. But I was going into prisons meeting for, with people who aren't just innocent. I think we often get, we often glorify, we need to get those who are wrongfully incarcerated um, out of the uh, judicial system. But I was going and meeting people who did the crime people who did hurt a community or hurt an individual. And I'm a huge believer in a framework called restorative justice, which is the understanding that, yes, we need to acknowledge harm and we need to protect our communities. But the best way to actually create healing and deeper understanding is not through this lens of retribution, eye for an eye, but it's actually through acknowledgement and truth and reconciliation. And both Corey and Brian Stevenson taught me that. And I, I, that's what's really leading me to run today. It's those frameworks, because I see that absence so much in politics generally, but especially in an area like this, I think it, it's so timely that we need to be having conversations on how technology, inequality, how these variables and inflation, how these variables are gonna be impacting people's lives. And we can't be judging those who are at the bottom. We need to be figuring out ways how we can lift them up. Yeah. Uh, Julie writes, I'd like to have someone with Ajawan's perspective, life experience, sensitivity, and hopefulness representing me in San Francisco. Won't you please consider relocating? So if it doesn't work out in the 18th district, Ajawan, you could always come to San Francisco. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Ajuan Rading, who was born into homelessness and is now running for Congress in the South Bay. It's been part of our first person series profiling interesting people here in the Bay Area. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.